so we've got two readings tonight. Uh, we're going to do them in reverse order from what is in your zines on, chapter, on page 7. Uh, the first reading tonight is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive in always being so sorry, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Our second reading tonight is from Matthew 6, and we're going to pick up where we started last week and move into tonight's passage as well. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As always, it would be great to keep uh, that Bible passage handy, uh, the passage from Matthew 6, especially where we'll be concentrating this evening on verses 22 to 24. And you know, there's a a prayer in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 30, uh, that I think leads us nicely into this evening's passage from Matthew 6. And so I thought to begin that I'd pray this prayer for us uh, and then uh, move into the sermon. So... The prayer comes from Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Dear Heavenly Father, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. 
Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know how you felt about me praying that prayer on your behalf. I once prayed that prayer on behalf of a previous church and had someone come up after the service and tell me directly that she'd refused to say amen. And perhaps you feel the same. If that's how you're feeling, well then, I expect that it was verse 8 that gave you pause. I'll read it again. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. If you're struggling to pray these words with your whole heart, just like that lady was, well, I can certainly relate to how you're feeling. Now, this prayer here isn't mandated in Scripture as a, as a prayer for all believers, but it is strikingly close to one that is. And, well, it's also a prayer offered up by one of the wisest people in the Bible. And yet in our hearts, we resist it because we kind of want to be rich. And praying it away doesn't really ring true with something deep down inside us. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. And so if you're anything like me, you hesitate over that second line, give me neither poverty nor riches. And then when you get to that final line, give me only my daily bread, you get that kind of sinking feeling in your heart when you realize that this prayer isn't just some dusty old take it or leave it Old Testament prayer. It's probably the prayer Jesus was alluding to in the Lord's Prayer, the model for all of our prayer lives. In Matthew 6, 11, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. And Proverbs 30, verse 8, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. And when we put those together, will our hearts fall? Because we really would rather be rich. And so we'll pray Proverbs 30 or that part of the Lord's Prayer, but our hearts aren't really behind it, even though we know they should be. Well, what's going on here? The answer is that our Christian counterculture is rubbing up against the prevailing culture of our times. Or to use Jesus' language in our passage today, one of our masters is pulling against the other. And so we're conflicted. We feel uneasy. Perhaps we can't quite put our finger on it, but something deep down in our hearts doesn't quite sit right. And so we resist. In fact, it's a bit like this. There are these two fish swimming along, 
and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and eventually one of them looks at the other and goes, what on earth is water? You see, we have a way of becoming so immersed in our culture that we become blinded to it. And our culture, surprise, surprise, thrives on materialism, the pursuit of wealth and the love of material things. And we're carried along by it mostly unnoticed. Until just like those fish, we come up against someone or something swimming the other way, against the current, counter-culturally, and we're pulled up short. We're challenged, just like that verse. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Christian counterculture. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. What it means to live as members of the kingdom of God while living in the kingdom of this world. If you've ever read right the way through the Sermon on the Mount, well, time and time again, we're left with this black and white picture of the nature of the kingdom of God. We're either members of the kingdom of God or members of the kingdom of this world. And while we may live in the overlap of the ages, well, the two simply just don't combine well. You can't live with one foot in each camp. You can't live with a foot in the church and a foot in the world. It leads to a conflicted and confused life, which may on the surface appear to be a life that enjoys the best of both worlds, but it's actually flirting with disaster. And perhaps nowhere more so than when it comes to this question of materialism. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes to the heart He goes to the thoughts and motivations of our hearts. He goes to our secret life, our inner lives, because they represent the true state of our beings, which is what God's interested in most. Humankind may look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it's no accident here that after Jesus addresses the three pillars of first century Jewish religious practice, giving, prayer, and fasting, Well, it's no accident that he returns again to money, and he stays there pretty much for the rest of the chapter. Money. Materialism. Wanting more and more of what you have enough of already. It's one of Jesus' greatest themes, because it's one of the greatest dangers to Christians living in this world. It's what gave you pause in that opening prayer. It's what was tugging your heart away from those words of God. It's one master pulling against another. And it's what Jesus is warning us about in the passage in front of us from Matthew 6. Uh, We'd like to have it both ways. We'd prefer have the best of both worlds, especially when it comes to money. But no one can serve two masters, says Jesus. And in verse 21, uh, where we left off last week, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this week, Jesus is going to drive home for us that last statement, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, um, with two metaphors. 
Uh, firstly, the metaphor of a lamp, which represents our vision, our physical sight, uh, there in verses 22 and 23. And then secondly, the metaphor of a slave master, in verse 24. Now, Jesus' illustration of a lamp tells of two kinds of vision, uh, one clear and the other dark. And then his illustration of a slave master uh, tells of the possibility of two masters, God and money. And so what we're going to do, we're going to look at each of these in turn. So firstly, Jesus' metaphor of the eye being the lamp of the body. And now, look, I don't know about you, but um, certainly when we first uh, read that at at a distance of 2,000 years from its original setting... Well, those words strike us as somewhat confusing. Uh, Jesus says this. I'm going to read those two verses again for us. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, well, how great is that darkness. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus uh, spoke those words. Uh, And uh, frankly, uh, his illustration, I think, perhaps makes things more confusing for us than uh, clear. What does he mean when he says the eye is the lamp of the body? And how does a, a lamp that we would normally associate with kind of shining outward actually shine inward uh, to fill our body with light, or or perhaps even more confusingly, uh, shine inwardly and fill us with with darkness. And then if that isn't confusing enough, well, Jesus then sort of mixes his metaphors uh, by telling us this eye lamp uh, can be either healthy or unhealthy, only to end our passage with almost this mind-bending image of uh, bodies being filled with dark light. Now, look, this might confuse us, the modern hearer. But to the ancient hearer, this imagery would have been as clear as it was powerful. And so here's what we're missing. In ancient thought, it was generally supposed that the human eye was quite literally a source of light, like a lamp. Now, sight was understood to function by means of a flow of light from the eyes out to the object in view. And light from the eyes uh, was then thought to merge with light from that object which was being illuminated by the sun. So the two lights would merge together. And then the light would flow back or bounce back to the eye uh, and penetrate through the eye into the person where sight was registered. That's how the ancients thought. And so as the lamp is an image for the eye, uh, so the eye in turn is an image for the human capacity to absorb what is available externally. So Jesus is saying, what you look at, what you fill your eyes with, floods your heart. If you fix your eyes on the things of this world instead of Jesus and his coming kingdom, then verses 19 to 21 from last week, where your eyes are, fixating on all those worldly treasures, there your heart will be also. If you're ever drinking in material uh, passions and and pursuits with your eyes, well, they're going to drown your heart. 
See, Jesus here is teaching us not to get caught up fantasizing over the material things that secular culture back then and secular culture today are forever running after. Houses, cars, travel, toys, trappings of wealth, these things perish, they spoil, they fade, they're eaten up by moths and rats and rust. They don't last, they're not eternal. But far more than just being a waste of time, they can actually be a trap and a snare laid out by the devil. They'll make you ineffective in your faith, or even worse, they'll stop you from coming to genuine faith in the first place. So here Jesus is reminding us that the eye is as dangerous as the heart. And in fact, it's usually through the eye that the heart is most strongly influenced. So be careful when it comes to what you look at and the way you look at it. Beware of greed and materialism. Instead, just like that song, fix your eyes on Jesus. Set your hearts and minds on things above, on things eternal. Perhaps to put it bluntly and contextualize it for us this evening, if you're absorbed with money, you'll miss everything else that really matters. Because materialism darkens the eye. It blinds us to what's truly important. And when you look at the Greek text, uh, the original language that sits behind uh, the English language in our New Testament, well, Jesus very much here is speaking about money. And if you look at the whole passage, the passage starts, as we saw last week, with treasure, and it ends with money. And this illustration in the middle of healthy and unhealthy eyes has, in the Greek, the sense of generous and ungenerous. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the healthy eye is translated, for example, in Proverbs 11.25 like this. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And it has the same sense, by the way, in James 1, Romans 12, 2 Corinthians 8, and 9. But also, in the same way, um, an unhealthy eye in Scripture regularly refers to an ungenerous spirit. For example, the unhealthy eye in Proverbs 28, 22 is translated like this. The stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. And so here, working with the sense of the Greek, uh, we might translate Jesus' first metaphor like this. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are ungenerous, uh, greedy, are consumed by material things, your whole body will be full of darkness. Jesus is teaching us that materialism darkens our eyes. It clouds our perspective and judgment. It clouds the way we look at life. It distorts our vision. Materialism blinds us to what is truly important by shutting out the light of Christ. And there are plenty more, but here's five ways that materialism blinds us. Firstly, materialism clouds our vision of happiness. When our hearts are set on earthly things, we believe we can't be happy without them. And by the by, that's the unrelenting gospel of Sydney. I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when my new car arrives. 
I'll be happy when the renovations on my house are completed. I'll be happy after September's new product release and my annual pilgrimage to the Apple Store. I'll be happy when. Only we never quite arrive because somehow too much in Sydney is never quite enough. Secondly, materialism clouds our vision of success. Take, for example, your career. You know, sometimes you choose a job. And materialism has the power to get you to choose a job. Not one that you're good at. Not one that you love. Not one that helps people. But one that just makes you money. You do it because it will get you a certain status in life. And you choose the job on the basis of that. And then you go on to tough it out for five or ten years, the adrenaline kind of keeping you going. And then after a while, you just, well, you just wake up one day and find yourself empty inside. Why did you choose the job? Your eye was dark. Look, I'm not saying that uh, everyone does this, but so many people do. Because materialism clouds our vision of success. Three, materialism, a, a grasping heart, uh, also keeps us from having a healthy vision for our children's lives. Uh, their chosen profession must fit our economic and social criteria, we think. Uh, never mind, by the by, that Jesus was a carpenter. And our children, will they better choose their future husbands and wives using these criteria as well, or else there's going to be problems? Four, materialism, a grasping spirit, clouds our vision of others' worth. We all know this. Money makes us feel important. It means we can eat in certain places, we can dress in a certain way, we can walk in certain circles. It gives us status and we feel a certain worth. But what so often comes with it is a tendency to do this. The higher up economically we get, we don't just look people, at people below us and say, you're below me economically. We say, you're below me. You don't see that happening in yourself? Because I, I certainly see it in my own heart. Uh, middle class people in general feel superior to the poor. We do. We may give money to the poor, we may pity the poor, but we feel superior to them. And really, there's no good reason. You know, if we started in the same place they did with the same parents they had and, and the same situation, do you really think that we'd be that much better? Well, I don't know. And yet we automatically feel that when we are better economically than someone, well, we feel that we're better. Or we're higher caliber socio-economically, and so we feel like we're higher caliber. That's because materialism clouds our vision of other people's worth. And you know, even more than this, materialism, a grasping spirit, clouds our vision of our future. John Piper tells this story in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, a title which really says it all. Well, here's a story, and as I read it to you, consider how closely this story lines up with the dreams of our culture in Sydney. 
and perhaps the secret desires of your heart as well. John Piper. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the northeast of America five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. He'd done well in business and she'd excelled in her career. Their superannuation accounts were full to overflowing and they had the whole world at their feet. They were living the dream. They bought a 50-foot cruiser. They had it crewed to some of the most beautiful beaches in the world and they spent their retirement cruising the Caribbean, the Amalfi Coast, the, the south of France, living the dream. The last great work of their life, collecting seashells. John Piper ends with these words. Can you picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Uh, look, Lord, here's my shells. Materialism clouds our vision of the future and results in a wasted life. But look, please, please here don't take Jesus the wrong way. Jesus warns us repeatedly about the love of money. But there's nothing intrinsically wrong with money. And by extension, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with having a lot of money. But it is a problem when money has a lot of you. Which brings us to Jesus' second metaphor, the image of a slave master. See there in, in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And look, we might agree in principle, but in practice, many of us, even most of us, well, we give it a go. We strive after the so-called best of both worlds, uh, material prosperity, comfort and luxury, and being an active member of the local church and raising uh, your children in the faith. In a week, well, we work hard in our careers, we even excel at them, we chase financial goals, we make grand plans for our retirement, and, and we enjoy holidays whenever we can afford the time. And in between these pursuits, well, we do our best to attend church on Sundays, a group midweek, and we volunteer when we can in other ways at church. Now, what I've just described there is the busy pattern of life that is most common amongst our churches. The modern Christian tries to have it both ways. We try and excel in material prosperity as well as in our Christian lives. So if this is the case, and I think you know, I think you can feel that it is, well, how do we then apply this real-life experience of most Christians to this polarizing statement by Jesus? He says... It's God or money. There's no middle ground. And yet, well, real life in the modern world seems to almost exclusively inhabit this middle ground. Well, I think perhaps the place to start is with verse 24, where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Now, look, if we're speaking literally, well, well yes, you can. 
I mean, it is technically possible, isn't it, to have two masters and to serve one of them some of the time and another for the rest of the time. It's possible. And even if you look at the passage, well, Jesus' next sentence goes on to discuss, in actual fact, what happens when you do serve two masters. And so we're best to understand Jesus' sentence as this. No one can serve two masters for long because it doesn't end well. See, that's, that's the point he's making. You see, Jesus then goes on to show that divided loyalties don't serve you or either master well. When you're working for the one, you're letting the other one down. And when you're working for the other, well, you're letting the first one down. And not only will they feel unhappy with the arrangement, but so will you. You'll always be conflicted. I'm doing this now, but, well, shouldn't I be doing that? And I can only do this just so far, so that I'll still have some time to do that. And so there's this kind of perpetual tug of war between your divided loyalties. Perhaps you can keep it up for a while. Perhaps you can keep all of the balls in the air for a while. But in the end, well, you're going to end up hating the first one and loving the second, or being devoted to the first and despising the second. So look to close, um, how about I bring Jesus' illustration into daily life? And already so many of us are, are so busy pursuing our careers and striving for our financial goals, the new car, getting into the property market or, or saving for the extension on a house, putting our children through private schools, having enough money in our super so that we can really enjoy our retirement. We know this modern life is so busy so then when we try and be the Christian that Jesus would have us be, well, there's a whole new layer of demands. Church every Sunday, meetings in the week, reading our Bibles and praying each day, a thoughtful living in terms of ethics and social justice, praying and teaching our children from the Bible each night before bed. Look, we can pull all of that off for a while. We can serve two masters for a while. But then all of a sudden, one day we wake up and we're exhausted. We start saying to ourselves, I've got to cut back. But you know, we can't always do that straight away. And so we find ourselves beginning to begrudge certain activities. Yet we soldier on stoically. We keep trying to do everything. But we begin to hate some of the things we're doing because they're stealing time from some of the other things we love. Until one day we just throw our hands up in the air and say, I just can't do it anymore. Church is taking up too much of my time. I've got to cut back. God, you're taking up too much of my time. Well, Jesus would save us some time and some heartache by saying, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Could it be that he is speaking directly to you this evening? Let me pray to close. Dear Heavenly Father,
Two things we ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse us before we die. Keep falsehood and lies far from us. Give us neither poverty nor riches, but give us only our daily bread. Otherwise, we may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or we may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.